You're listening to episode 32 of the Secret Origins Podcast, featuring the origin of the Justice League of America. Welcome to the Secret Origins Podcast, a review show dedicated to the Secret Origins comics published by DC in the 1980s. I'm your host, Ryan Daly, and this is a very special episode, a very different sort of episode. I'm recording this introduction without a guest on the line. Now, if you're thinking that last episode's Super Squad Spectacular with Al Girding, Kyle Benning, and the Irredeemable Shag just broke my mind and spirit and discouraged me from ever having another guest on the show... Well, you'd only be half right. The fact is, you're going to hear even more guests on this episode. Rob Kelly from the Aquaman Shrine and the Fire and Water podcast, Diablo Frank from the Idol Head of Diablo and the Marvel Superheroes podcast, Chris Franklin from Supermates and the Power Records podcast, Chad Bokelman from the Lantern cast and the upcoming Action Comics Weekly podcast, and finally, a new guest making his first appearance on Secret Origins, Mr. Keith G. Baker. Each of these guests was recorded separately and asked about his history with the Justice League, as well as his feelings about the revised post-crisis formation of the team, and some favorite Justice League stories. But first, if you saw Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice this weekend, and then stumbled upon this podcast while searching the internet for more Justice League content, allow me to explain what this podcast and the Secret Origins comic was all about. Secret Origins was an anthology series published by DC Comics, with each issue telling the origin of at least one hero or villain from the DC Universe. The series ran for 50 issues between January of 1986 and June of 1990, and also included three annuals and one special issue. All told, between the 54 comics with the Secret Origins banner, something like 120 stories were chronicled in this series. And in retrospect, it may sound foolish, borderline negligent for the story of DC's premier super team to eschew Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman. But that's what Secret Origins 32 did. Hey, 1988 was a different time. Rob Kelly, how did you discover the Justice League of America? Boy, you know, I don't remember a time where I never, I didn't read it. I think it was the first comic book, even ahead of Aquaman, because I don't think there was an Aquaman comic when I was first buying comics. I really don't remember. It was so long ago. It's always the comic that I bought. I never missed it, even when I didn't have money for other comics. Justice League was always the number one book. And I will say, many years ago, when I was being punished by my parents, and their punishment was no comics for three months. It's pretty bad punishment. This was during the age of newsstand distribution. And, you know, back then you thought that if a comic was off the stands, it was gone forever. I actually had my best friend buy the comic for me every month <laughs> and, and, and store it at his house. And then when my punishment was over, I had the three issues back up to read because I just couldn't bear the idea of living without the Justice League of America comic book. That'll show your parents. That's right. <laughs> uh, I'll show them. Diablo Frank. Super Friends. 
I, I watched the Super Friends cartoon in syndication and on Saturday mornings. And I also caught the uh, the 1966 uh, shorts as well. But like most people from my generation, I, I grew up on Super Friends and Super Friends were synonymous with Justice League. So I don't have a clear point of going from one to the other. They were all the same to me as a kid. Chris Franklin. I probably discovered the Justice League through the Super Friends cartoon, probably more than likely the second incarnation uh, that was the all-new Super Friends hour. I may have seen the Wendy and Marvin version before, but that version, the all-new Super Friends hour, is probably where I first encountered them. And I actually had some Super Friends comics from around that time, right where Zan and Jaina came in, because E. Nelson Bridwell had to make Super Friends work within Earth-1 continuity. He couldn't stand himself. It actually had the Justice League on the satellite team up with the Global Guardians, which I think was some of their first appearances there. Uh-huh. Chad Bokelman. My personal experience with the Justice League, uh, I feel like my generation, uh, our generation, whatever, the Justice League is just sort of this entity that is constant. It's always been there. It's one of those that's kind of hard to pin down where... I was first introduced to it. I would say the concept, the thing that sticks in my mind is obviously the Justice League, Justice League Unlimited animated series. But that came out in, what, the early 2000s, late 90s? So I'm well into my teens then. So at that point, I've already, I I know who Superman, Batman, you know, Wonder Woman, uh, everybody is. And I know that they have a team called the Justice League. But where I acquired that actual information prior to that series, I do not know. But my main exposure is absolutely the Justice League, Justice League Unlimited cartoon series, for sure. Which I actually just rewatched the whole thing not, not too long ago. Keith G. Baker. Growing up, the Super Friends cartoon was always around. But I know that I always had comic books sitting around. I had older cousins, plus I had an older sister who was eight years older than me. Uh, so I always had comics around. I always seemed to know about the Justice League and about other things. Uh, but when I was growing up, it was mainly you know Hulk or something like that that appealed to younger kids. But I was always reading comics. But as far as Justice League goes, they never really hit me until a little bit later. I was uh, you know I was I was always into the Flash. I was into Green Lantern and into Superman. Any any of those fantastical worlds of, uh, you know, the early 70s of uh, DC Comics and those heroes. Those heroes fascinated me a little bit more than the Marvel characters because, you know, they they were always good. And at the end of the story, everything turned out all right. Plus, they had fantastic adventures. And the, the pseudoscience aspect of it kind of appealed to me. Do you remember the first Justice League comic you read? My first Justice League issue, though, I'm pretty certain, was JLA number 155 which was from June 1978. That's uh, one of the giant issues. It's like the big disaster issue. It looks like an Erwin Allen disaster movie on the cover. And I'm pretty sure that was my my first issue of Justice League, and I just bought it sporadically ever since. And I was three and a half (laughs) when I got that comic. So it was bought for me, not... I didn't buy it, but I, yeah, I still I still have a very dog-eared copy of that that's missing about 20 pages or something and no cover. But You weren't a three-year-old kid with your own pull list? <laughs> Man, I wish. <laughs> I did have a drugstore right up the street from me, though, so I almost kind of had my own pull list. So I want to say one of my first JLA issues was JLA Annual Number 2 which is one of the uh, tie-ins for the Ghosts annual year. They did that, um, where various characters or a group of characters would encounter some reanimated foe of some kind. Of course, in the Green Lantern one, it was that was actually, I think, Necron's second appearance uh, a long time ago. Uh, so... so. And we all know what happened with uh, Necron. But, uh, Never be- to be heard or seen from again. <laughs> exactly. 
it was around that Secret Society of Supervillains uh, two-parter. I think Jerry Conway wrote that. It was around uh, 1979. It was 167, 168. It was when the Secret Society of Supervillains um, stole their identities and took over the hero, swapped bodies with the heroes. So, you know, I was around seven years old when that came out. So, so that really hit me. I was like, wow, okay, so this is a group of heroes who had to work together to solve something a little bit different. So, you know, that... After that, the Justice League kind of started paying attention a little bit more to them then. You know, actually, honestly, one of the first comics I remember reading that was specifically related to the Justice League was probably Blue Devil when he turned up on their satellite and met with Zatanna and with Elongated Man. And that was sort of like the first time I recall reading a story that got into Justice League specific materials as opposed to Super Friends, where it's just here's a comic book with Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman and so forth. So and then from there, I was probably JLI. The Justice League probably had some guest appearances in some various books, but uh, they were still Super Friends to my mind. So when I started thinking about the Justice League as a separate concept from Super Friends, it was probably around that time period. The Justice League of America debuted in The Brave and the Bold, issue 28, cover dated February-March 1960. According to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, it actually would have come out on December 29, 1959. The book, written by Gardner Fox, illustrated by Mike Sikowski, and edited by Julie Schwartz, featured a cover with five of DC's champions, Wonder Woman, Aquaman, The Flash, Green Lantern, and Martian Manhunter, locked in battle with a giant alien starfish. The text blurb on the cover promised a team-up of the world's greatest heroes. And it absolutely was when you consider that the five named heroes were bolstered by Superman and Batman inside the issue. After two more trial issues in Brave and the Bold 29 and 30, the team got its own book in Justice League of America issue 1, released in August 1960. They opened their ranks to the first new member, Green Arrow, in Justice League issue 4, but their origin story was not disclosed until issue 9, cover dated February 1962. Hey, not as bad as the Justice Society having to wait 40 years for their origin to be told. Anyway, the book Justice League of America lasted 261 issues, with the final chapter of the original volume being published in 1987 as part of the Legends crossover event. Throughout the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, the ranks of the team changed constantly as members left and new members joined, including the Atom, Hawkman and Hawkgirl, Black Canary, Elongated Man, Red Tornado, Zatanna, Firestorm, Vixen, Vibe, Gypsy, and Steel, plus temporary or honorary members like Adam Strange, Metamorpho, and the Phantom Stranger. As the premier super team of the DC Universe, the Justice League made regular cameo or guest appearances in dozens of DC comics. After Crisis on Infinite Earths, and more specifically after Legends, the League underwent a massive change. Keith Giffen and J.M. DeMatteis came in to write the new version of Justice League, which quickly became Justice League International. And you can hear a lot more about that on the brand new Justice League International Bwahaha podcast, hosted by the Irredeemable Shag. You can check that out as part of the Fire and Water Network. And as a personal plug, I'm on the first episode. Check it out. Throughout the 90s and up until today, the Justice League has gone through many incarnations. Some great, some not so great. Some comprised of the greatest heroes in the DC pantheon, and some that included Blue Jay or Triumph. 
why am I still going on over the publication history of the Justice League? It's the freaking Justice League. There have been cartoons about this group, and soon there will be a major motion picture based on the team. You know who these guys are. Do you have a favorite era or favorite incarnation of the Justice League? Oh yeah, by far the Justice League is the satellite era. It's after after they moved up to the satellite and it ends when Firestorm joins the team. That whole era right there that that once Aquaman made the mistake of uh, disbanding the team and then they moved to Michigan for some unknown reason, then things kind of went downhill. But yeah, definitely that satellite era was was all about getting the greatest group of heroes together. And Jerry also had a, had a way of making it personal between them. The, the, these are guys that can move mountains and blow up moons. And, and yet he had the time to do some character development on all of them, too. So it seemed like I knew all of them personally, you know. I have to say, I don't know if it's separately an era, though I guess it is. I would say all the issues following, ironically enough, when Firestorm joined, mm-hmm. um, the ones, as much as I love Dick Dillon, and I do, the about a year's worth of stories between 189 and 200, where George Perez took over, yep. uh, and they were mostly inked by John Beatty, those are my favorite JLA stories. I mean, virtually every story to me is a classic. And it ends with number 200, which, as I have said many times, is the greatest piece of literature ever produced by Western civilization. And I love that Firestorm was on the team. I thought he added something to it that no other member had. So to me, that is like the the real, the perfect version of the Justice League is all those members, Zatanna, Firestorm. It's just, it's, the, it's heavenly. I never get tired of reading those comics. And those are the same ones I have. Those copies are the same ones I had that I bought off the newsstand 30 years ago. They're same copies. The version of the Justice League that I got the most excited about was Grant Morrison's JLA up through to the Mark Wade run. I do love the concept of the Magnificent Seven, the classic founding members. I like the Justice League as being the big mythic pantheon of superheroes. I don't mind when they have smaller groupings or less powerful groupings, but the closer you get to that kind of superheroics, the more they become like the Avengers. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that kind of sets the Justice League apart is while they do have a wide variety of powers, you've got Superman on one end of the spectrum and you know Green Arrow on the other end of the spectrum, but you have to have those really big cosmic powers and cosmic characters and situations, and you want to have inventive, clever plots that that utilize that variety of characters and i think that grant morrison did that the best but i also have a soft spot for jli and the detroit era league well my favorite incarnation is the satellite era but more specifically it is that very brief period where it's jerry conway writing and george perez drawing the book as much as i love dick Dillon's stuff there was just something about the energy that perez brought to the book I mean, it's just there's just some fantastic artwork, and you could tell Perez he was he was living his dream. That's that's what he came to DC for. Unfortunately, he he got his wish via the death of Dick Dillon, which he didn't want. But you know, he did get to draw Justice League, and he was doing that in Titans at the same time. So it was just a great great era. Too short. The big deal, as pertains to this issue of Secret Origins, is that after Crisis on Infinite Earths, the lineup of the original team had to change. I'll let Mark Wade explain it as he does in the back matter of this issue. When the decision was made to retell the origin of the original Justice League of America, certain publishing realities affected the story. Most important, in DC's post-crisis universe, Wonder Woman didn't make her heroic debut until long after her former comrades Aquaman, Martian Manhunter, Flash, and Green Lantern. Platter, Keith Giffen, and editor Mark Wade briefly discussed the idea of simply leaving a female member out of the original JLA. 
but eventually dismissed the idea. Not only was the League never really a boys' club, but there was something more substantive and, oh gosh, just more League-ish about a five-member team, which is how Black Canary ended up being the fifth mystery member of the Justice League of America. So yeah, Wonder Woman was off the table. She couldn't be a founding member of the League. Neither could Superman, although the Man of Steel does make an appearance in this story. The Dark Knight Detective 2 was dropped from the origin story because... reasons, I guess. Instead of seven founding members of the League, you had five, with Black Canary, whose own origin was still a little confused at this time, serving as a founder in place of Wonder Woman. How does the new origin hold up? We'll find out right after this break for other podcasts you might enjoy. Don't go away. Don't call them babes. Definitely don't call them broads. But can we call them birds? Welcome to Feathers and Foes, a Birds of Prey podcast where we are celebrating the tales of the Femme Fatales. Superman flies above you. Aquaman rules below you. But the birds stand with you. Feathers and Foes. I'm your host, Ashford. And in the studio with me is... Hello. Black Canary? Wait a minute, what did you do with Leah and Mark? Did you just call me a broad? No, I said don't call them babes, don't call them broads. So you're saying I'm not a babe? No, yes, I don't know. I, I don't see you as some object. I see you as a well-rounded character with her own wants, desires, and agency. Stop saying buzzwords, hoping to gain a female audience. Canary, how dare you question my sincerity? That's Black Canary to you. Do you want me to plug your show or not? Please plug my show, Miss Canary. You can contact Ashford, Leah, or Mark on Twitter. The Twitter handle is at Feathers and Foes. You can also email them on the website feathersandfoes.libsyn.com. In addition to all of this, you may subscribe to them on iTunes. Just go to the search option and type Feathers and Foes. Hi, I'm Gene Hendricks. You may remember me from such shows as The Hammer Podcasts and The Quantum Cast. I'd like to tell you about some special shows that I'm doing with some of your favorite podcasters. These shows are all about the live-action versions of comic book characters, and I'm calling them... Legends of the Superheroes! In each episode, we'll be looking at a different TV show or movie featuring characters like... Wonder Woman! Dr. David Banner. And let's not forget about the non-superheroes, such as... Swamp Thing! And many more. Look for the Legends of the Superheroes specials under the Hammer Podcasts at twotruefreaks.com. Origins 32 is cover dated November 1988, but would have hit the streets on July 19th of that year, according to Mike's Amazing World. 
The story, titled All Together Now, is scripted by Peter David from a Keith Giffen plot based on the original story from Justice League of America 9 by writer Gardner Fox. Eric Shanower drew the heck out of the issue, with Gaspar Saladino providing lettering, Gene D'Angelo the coloring, and Mark Wade editing. Shanower's cover shows the new Old League monitored on screen by current members of Justice League International. What do you think of the cover? I think it's interesting, you know, that they're standing, you know, the the current leagues watching them on the monitor. And uh, I like that guys, you know, honked off looking like he doesn't want anything to do with it. Probably because Hal's in the picture. That's probably his whole story there. I think if I remember right, there was either a house ad or maybe it was a blurb at the end of the issue before that showed the cover, but Black Canary was whited out. Yep. And, and you couldn't tell who she was. And it's like, who is that? You know, it's Overall, you know, it's much more satisfying to have Black Canary replace Wonder Woman than have Miss America replace Wonder Woman. Because, uh, no, no offense to, you know, all four Miss America fans, but... Uh, all four of them are named Al Girding. <laughs> we love you, Al. Great show, by the way. I've been listening to that. Uh, but, uh, you know, Black Canary is obviously a more, to DC fans, a much more beloved character than Miss America, who hadn't been published for years other than a handful of All-Star Squadron issues. But yes, I remember thinking, wait a minute, what are they doing? Because I had the history of the DC Universe book where it just showed, you know, the Sausage Fest Justice League <laughs> standing there with no with no female member. You know? And Batman. It showed right. Batman. They they lied to us. They showed that Batman was a founding member. And, you know, I guess Denny O'Neill was like, nope, he's an urban legend. He doesn't exist. <laughs> but yeah, so I, I remember I remember the first version of seeing the cover. So when they I finally saw it was Black Canary, I'm like, oh, okay. And I honestly, from the start, said, well, it can't be Wonder Woman, so I had, I really had no problem with it. On the distant alien world of Apalax, the ruling Kalar has died. According to Apalaxian custom, whoever assassinated the former Kalar gets to be the new one. But seven different Apalaxians are all claiming credit for the murder. An Apalaxian official, like a Grand Vizier, explains the other Apalaxian custom, that the seven candidates must battle to the death for the right to be crowned Kalar. The problem is these types of civil disputes have historically decimated Apalaxian populations, so the Vizier tells them that they will have to fight on planet Earth. The seven contenders' minds are transferred into host bodies of different forms and rocketed to Earth in seven meteors. The first of the meteors lands near Middleton, Colorado, where the Martian Manhunter soars high enough over the city that no one could recognize his alien form. He wonders, doubtfully, whether the people of Earth would accept him if they knew the truth, when he views a bizarre happening down below. The town of Middleton is filled with statues, but no people, until Jean Jones realizes to his horror that the people are the statues. What caused this horrific transformation he doesn't know, but from roughly a mile away, Jean hears the thudding steps of a giant creature. Turning invisible, he follows the sounds until he finds the first Apalexian contender, in the shape of a giant stone god. The stone god shoots eye beams that change people into stone statues. The Martian Manhunter flies around using his super strength, I mean Martian strength, to punch the stone monster. It has no effect, so he switches tactics and tries probing the stone god with telepathy. That too fails, and even worse, the psychic backfire hurts Jean and gives the Apalexian the knowledge of his Martian enemy, particularly his weakness to fire. The stone god wrecks a gas station and then ignites the gasoline, creating an inferno that threatens to engulf the alien Atlas. 
Still invisible, Jean crashes into a fire hydrant using the water to fend off the blaze and rejuvenate his powers. The giant walks off, and for a moment Jean considers waiting long enough for the fire to burn itself out. But that would put more people in danger. The Martian Manhunter will not be paralyzed by fear. With all his Martian might and resolve, Jean flies through the inferno and smashes into the stone god, shattering the Appalachian's battle form. The effort, while successful, is enough to knock Jean unconscious. When he awakens, the people of Middleton have reverted back to normal, and they're quite intrigued by the green-skinned humanoid among them, meeting the veracity of his Martian heritage with incredulity and speculation. Jean doesn't stick around long. During his brief telepathic connection to the Appalachian, he learned that six more were bound for Earth. He takes off, looking for the next would-be alien conqueror. Diablo Frank on the Martian Manhunter section. I enjoyed it. I thought they did a good job of setting up who the Manhunter is and what he's supposed to represent in these stories. The alienation, the isolation. It was something that was implied in his earlier stories and was picked up on by writers like Steve Englehart. And I like that aspect of the character. It wasn't really a major part of the Silver Age stories, and they do kind of play around a little bit with why Marsh Manhunter became revealed to the public. But the core of the character is correct, and I thought they did a good job of showing his variety of powers and his basic personality in a, you know five short pages. And I also really dug that they managed to incorporate his logo into a thought balloon. I love <laughs> when comic books do. I love it in this story, and I loved it in JLA number one when they did it there. Do you like it specifically because it refers to him as the Manhunter from Mars? I do like that title, although I do have to point out that they used the logo from after he'd already been a member of the Justice League. In, the, in this time period, he would have still been the anglicized John Jones. They didn't change it up until he was killed in this identity of John Jones and moved on in his career. I like this chapter of the story, and you're right. They get to the power sets of the character. I mean, they, they show him doing a whole lot. It kind of baffles me that I get why they would do it, but it just it seems to run contrary to the nature of comics and what you want to do, the fact that they keep him invisible for so much of this. And I like the effect of having it just sort of the washed out pencils without any inks or anything. It sort of it looks like the surprint of a who's who story. But I think it you lose something from that. I mean you lose how great some of these panels would look because it's just kind of a blue sketch fighting this amorphous purplish brown rock thing. So the effect of making him look invisible while cool and while nice for the story kind of brings the art of what the comic should be a little bit back a step. Does that make sense? I see where you're coming from, but I don't really agree because in this time period, in the original comics, Marsh Manhunter, pretty much all of his adventures took place with him invisible. And so it's a nice callback to that. I think that most people who are reading the story, they know who these characters are. They know what their normal color schemes are. And I, I thought they did – I'm surprised at how good of a job they did of having a blue color hold against what's usually a blue background. You can see Manhunter pretty well. The only time you start to kind of lose him is when he's transposed against a background that's too busy. Like there's a panel where he's falling into a street scene yep. and it's hard to pull him out of the, you know, to see him. But I enjoy that. It looked interesting. And considering that in the next chapter, Aquaman is barely seen as, you know, as, a, as an entity <laughs> that's recognizable in any way, shape or form. I think Manhunter came off kind of light on this, that particular aspect. That's a good point. And I completely agree. And I understand what you're saying in terms of the history, keeping him invisible. It makes sense. And it feels authentic for the character and how he would be acting in this situation. But I just think it sort of runs contrary to the spirit of comics. I want to see him larger than life in full color glory pounding the crap out of this this stone statue guy. 
and I feel like I'm getting a like almost a literal ghost of that image rather than what it is. But they, you're right. I mean, for what they're trying to accomplish, there are a few panels that look terrific. The close-up shot of his face after he's been knocked into the fire hydrant and the water is spraying him, the close-up shot of his face... I, I love that. That's a great... I mean, Eric Shanower does a great job with facial expressions all throughout this story. Yeah, I was impressed with it just on a technical level. They managed to pull it off because it could have, should have been much worse looking than it was. And, you know, it's funny. It, it shows, I think, you know, just growing up. When I first read this story, I, I found the, the art style to be too silver agey, too bland. And I look at it today, I'm like, I'm just amazed at l- the facial expression, the realistic proportions of the characters, just the sweetness of it. And there's a surprising level of detail considering how clean the artwork is. So I'm much more impressed with Eric Shannon now than I was when I first read the story. Do you have any idea what he went on to do after this? Because... Oh, he did a lot of stuff. Um, I think the main thing he did immediately after this was a series of Oz books for First Comics. Okay. And in more recent years, he's been doing Age of Bronze at Image Comics, uh, which is a heavily researched historical coverage of the Trojan War. Huh. Okay. Yeah, I was surprised. Like when I looked at his history, I was like, okay, he's been he's gotten steady work, but it just seems like it wasn't ever like big mainstream things that would have been on my radar. So yeah, I don't think he's terribly interested in doing superhero stuff. I'm sure this was just about exposure, or maybe he had an affection for those old comics. He typically will work in in more full on fantasy settings, mm-hmm. and he tends to work in the kind of stories that would appeal to non comic readers. I, I suspect that he's one of these guys like Rick Geary who has an audience that's probably larger of non fanboys that still support his work. Yeah. Uh, any overall general thoughts about Manhunter in this section? I just like that they did a good job of showing his variety of powers, but I really liked how in this specific story it ends with him just going with plain old superhuman strength. He just blows through the thing, which helps to show his raw power. And considering how often people try to make a point of emphasizing the powers that he has that are different from other heroes, it's kind of nice every now and again I just see him smash something. So I enjoyed that, and I like that each one of these segments got a lot of character and a great showcase just, just in little five-page segments. So I thought they did a really good job of that. And one of the things, too, that's nice about the whole invisibility is it gives it that much more impact when the group is together and they're in their whole superheroic forms standing with each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, the story's set up in such a way that it teases you don't – not only are you not getting to see the Justice League until late in the story, but you're not even really getting to see the full-formed heroes much of the time until the end of the story. So it's a nice little tease toward that end point. One of the aliens has landed in the middle of the sea where we find Aquaman, who has only just found Atlantis earlier that day, putting this story canonically right after Aquaman's flashback tale in Adventure Comics 260. The second Appalachian, dubbed the Mercury Monster, appears as a liquid blob transforming nearby fish into smaller blobs of mercury. When it transforms Arthur into a floating blob too, the King of the Seven Seas needs to resist panic and his own insecurities and figure out what to do. Unable to do anything but ride the currents, Arthur tries to attack the Mercury Monster, but that proves futile. His movement is limited and haphazard, and the Appalachian can control him and the sea life it has transformed into liquid metal. Aquaman is near despair. He doubts the strength of his powers and his status as a hero. But when the Mercury Monster heads toward Atlantis, Arthur decides to act, to defend his newfound home and people. He spies a nearby whirlpool and suspects that the Mercury Blob would have no conception of what the whirlpool can do. All it wants is to convert more fish to Mercury and bolster its forces. Aquaman uses his telepathic powers to send the fish toward the whirlpool. 
The Mercury Monster follows the fish until it is caught by the Whirlpool's force and ripped apart. The effect of the alien's death transforms Arthur back to normal. The Sea King visits a scientist friend at the Institute for Oceanographic Studies, who tells Aquaman he suspects the Mercury Monster was alien. He tells Aquaman about reports of the stone giant and some strange occurrences in the Florida Everglades. Aquaman heads south to investigate the rumors. Rob Kelly on the Aquaman section. Uh, I liked it. It's, I mean, overall, I really think this is a solid comic book. It's very funny. It's very lighthearted. I, I, at the risk of taking everything a little too seriously, I don't know if I like Aquaman telling, do what you're told, you damn fish. There's <laughs> like a little, like, it's a little too far. But otherwise, no, it's really solid. I mean, it's Peter David and Keith Giffen aping the basic Gardner Flock, Gardner Flocks, Gardner Fox plot, breaking everybody up into their individual sections. Aquaman. You know, so it's it's just that classic format, and uh, it's fun. It's uh, you get to see Aquaman turn into the liquid creature and do what he can to save himself and stuff. So it's 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 good stuff. I never like that he's malformed in this weird kind of amorphous blob for most of his section, especially because the artist Eric Shanoer. I love his work on this, and I can't believe he didn't have a more high profile career in kind of big superhero comics. But and I love the way he draws Aquaman. So I kind of. I'm kind of miffed that, you know, for most of this section, uh, he's just a purple glob of goop or something. <laughs> uh, I did like this section where Aquaman is concerned about losing an arm, that his part of his arm is going right. to come off. Uh, maybe a little bit of foreshadowing of what Peter David would do with the character in the future. Oh, let's not talk about that. Oh, come on. You know you love that part of Aquaman's <laughs> history. Uh, what do you think about Aquaman not appearing in Secret Origins, but for this issue? <sighs> I was always very disappointed by that. I know that they ended up using that story that they commissioned, I guess, for Secret Origins in the Legend of Aquaman special. Yes. Uh, I'm not a big fan of that, so I would have been perfectly – I'm retrospect, I'm perfectly happy that he didn't get to appear in Secret Origins. But this was a time where I, it cemented my belief that Aquaman was always sort of an also-ran to DC editors because it's like – you know, no offense, but Midnight, Nightshade, Miss America, they get half books to themselves and Aquaman doesn't. Now, neither did Wonder Woman. Right. So, you know, OK, he's in good company there. I mean, but it just felt like, you know, yet another example of Aquaman not getting a, a chance to shine. Elsewhere, a fledgling hero steps out on one of her first adventures. Black Canary patrols her city from the rooftops, wondering if the world will accept her as the new Black Canary, daughter of the original crime fighter, armed with a sonic scream and an outdated pair of fishnet stockings. Hearing a scream from the alley below, Black Canary leaps into action. She spots someone harassing a woman in the alley, then demands the mugger surrender, deepening her voice so he'll take her more seriously. Except it's not a mugger, it's Glassman, the third Appalachian, who uses eye beams to turn people into glass. The Glassman tries to shoot Dinah, but she dives out of the way in the street. She realizes that the monster transformed even more people into glass. She leaps away again, but the Glassman's gaze manages to turn one of her legs into glass. The Appalachian laughs at his prey, and that's enough to really piss her off. She unleashes her canary cry into a focused sonic blast that shatters the Glassman, but thankfully none of its other victims, including her foot. And as we'd expect, once the Appalachian is destroyed, the effects of the glass power wear off. A local cop congratulates Black Canary on a job well done, and tries to get a date with her. She turns him down, but manages to get information about the meteor landing in the Everglades. Black Canary speeds down to Florida in her car and sneaks past a local police barricade. 
She makes her way through the dense foliage, crossing her fingers that she doesn't ruin her fishnet stockings. She spots the meteor, and something more, a tree in humanoid shape, speaking in an alien tongue. When Dinah approaches, she becomes frozen and demands the tree person free her. Now speaking in English, the tree person says he is not responsible, that he is as much a prisoner as she is now. Chris Franklin on the Black Canary section. Well, you know, I really love Eric Shanor's art. I think he draws a gorgeous Black Canary. She looks real, but she's just flat gorgeous. She's got huge eyes, yeah. but, she's, but she's gorgeous. And uh, I, I think it's really cute. You know, I think it's funny how she says, you know, other people inherit superpowers. I inherit, you know, fishnets and <laughs> a set of fishnets or, or something. So I think it's a really great segment. I think it's interesting that they switched. Uh, in the original version, Aquaman's fighting the glass creature and Wonder Woman fights the Mercury creature. So they switch it. So Aquaman fights the Mercury creature and Black Canary, who's, of course, replacing Wonder Woman, fights the glass creature, which I, I thought was kind of interesting. But I, I thought it was really well done. I like how the police officer hits on her. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, well, we could talk about it, you know. <laughs> can't blame him. No, I can't either, especially as drawn by him. So there's not a bad segment in this book, in my opinion, but that one, it, it really jumped out at me as, as just, wow, I, at the time, I couldn't think if I'd ever seen Black Canary drawn as attractively, you know, I mean... It appealed to me. I was about, how old was I when this thing came out? I think I was like, uh, I don't know, 12, 13 maybe. So, yeah, <laughs> I appreciated it. <laughs> there is, for for not being like photorealistic or anything like that, there is definitely a real softness about her. And I, you're right. I think part of it is her eyes and part of it is her lips. She's got these mm-hmm. really full lips. Like she looks very kissable, I guess. Right, she does. Is, yeah, she's just. There's a a sweetness, a wholesomeness, and, and but a genuine beauty that I want to spend more time. And I don't know why Shannon didn't draw more superhero comics. Like he's kind of been more into the fantasy, sure. you know, art than superheroes, which is a shame because I'd love to have seen him like shackled down to a desk and <laughs> and and draw a you know a Silver Age type book because. That's what I really like is it, it kind of it has that kind of classic Silver Age veneer to it, but it feels like a somewhat like an independent comic too because there is definitely these. I mean, they, the characters feel very real. I mean, there's they're very expressive, which might be partially you know a carryover from what McGuire was doing in JLI at the time. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, there's there's you know some of the faces that they make, like you know when Green Lantern's like. Oh, it had to be yellow and, you know, things like that, you know, and when Flash is like, does that S on his chest stand for snob? You know, with the look on his face. And But the, the Black Canary, get back on Black Canary, that, like you said, the lips, the eyes, and her body's not, you know, it's, it's in proportion. She's not, you know, going to fall over because she's too chesty or anything like that. Right. You can see her doing what she's doing, but she's still drawn very curvaceous but in a in a realistic way right like in the la- like in the shot where the cop is talking to her she's shorter i mean she's not drawn like the same height as a guy like she doesn't have this sort of statuesque figure she's kind of petite but mm-hmm. but not like pencil thin she's she's shaped yeah like i said it's she's not photostatted but there is a realness about her that just comes from the expressiveness and i definitely i was thinking the exact same thing like partner her with kevin mcguire both around the same time, they seem to have this expressiveness of the features that you, I didn't see a lot of in the Bronze Age. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. 
Hal Jordan, the Green Lantern of Space Sector 2814, returns to Earth after meeting the Guardians of the Universe and other members of the Green Lantern Corps for the first time. This would put this story right after the events of Green Lantern Issue 1 from 1960. As he races toward Earth, Green Lantern notices a wayward meteor approaching the atmosphere. His interest picks up when he sees the meteor suddenly change speed and direction. Instead of burning up in Earth's atmosphere like a good meteor, this one crashes relatively safely in Africa. Hal pursues the object while mulling over heroic catchphrases in his head. From out of the meteorite comes the fourth Appalachian contender in the shape of a giant yellow bird. This golden rock fires eye beams that, just like the others, transform other people and creatures into beings not unlike itself. Green Lantern's ring, of course, is useless against the color yellow, but Hal tries some indirect attacks against the golden rock. Faster than he expects the bird to move, it grabs Hal in its golden talons, and its touch begins changing Hal into a gold-feathered creature. Hal fires his ring into a cloud, setting off a hailstorm that distracts the golden rock enough that it lets Hal go. Still in danger of changing, Green Lantern leads the big yellow bird on a chase into a waterfall. When the rock flies into the waterfall, Green Lantern freezes the water. This destabilizes the Appalachian's battle form enough that Hal and the other animals changed by the bird revert back to their normal form. After taking the animals to a zoo, Green Lantern realizes that more meteorites have crash-landed on Earth. He heads off toward the one meteorite believed to be unopened in the Florida Everglades. When Hal arrives, voices from the woods try to warn him. Chad Bokelman on the Green Lantern section. Uh, I like it. I'm just kind of sick of the trope of if you're going to use, you know, especially Silver Age Hal, you need to use the up against yellow thing. I mean, like, there are other ways to overcome, uh, not necessarily overcome, but uh, to confront Hal with an issue without using his one weakness. And there's actually a, a lot of that in here. Well, I, will, I guess not a lot because, you know, John, John gets confronted with fire earlier on, of course, and some other things. But it just it was just because it's really obvious and on the nose doesn't mean you have to use it. Mm -hmm. But they did anyway. So I don't know. But yeah, I kind of feel like it, it feels like very forced and arbitrary. And it goes back to the original origin that, yeah, he's fighting him because for a new reader – finding the character of Green Lantern through this team book, this is giving you some bit about his character. Oh, the fact that he has this weakness. But it is kind of an arbitrary thing because you think, you know, it's just chance or fate that of all of these seven aliens, Green Lantern comes up against this one. Like, what if he had gone up against the stone giant or the diamond monster or something? Then it doesn't matter. So it, it really only makes sense in the sense that this is a story. Right. So. It's definitely reminiscent, though, because even though Hal is part of this, uh, it's very clearly set in the history of Green, Green Lantern, because you see, mm -hmm. you know, he's he, at the very beginning, he's just come back from knowing and being equipped with the knowledge that the Green Lantern Corps exists. Mm -hmm. uh, so he's headed back to Earth from that. And right about this time in Green Lantern history, and, and I can't remember uh, the actual issue number, but... There's also an issue where Hal goes up against yellow pterodactyls on another planet. <laughs> so, I mean, you got a yellow bird, 
yellow pterodactyl. It's a Silver Age thing. I, that's that's cool. Uh, I do like some of the art in here, like how you got Hal's sort of bored face as he flies to confront this this threat. But you know, whatever. Yeah, he's he's just kind of ho hum about everything. <laughs> what he's doing with his power ring is a little beyond me, like freezing the waterfall. And again, my experience, the the lion's share of my experience with with Hal Jordan and his power ring and all of that is modern era stuff. I expect explanations as to why the ring can do this, not. This ring is based in science, but it's essentially also magic. It can do really anything he wants it to, which kind of bothers me uh, from time to time. But I have to firmly ensconce myself in, in, the, in the knowledge that this is very clearly of a piece uh, in, in, a, in a Silver Age field. My favorite part of the whole thing, of course, is for whatever reason, Giffen felt like uh, giving us a kind of mini origin of Hal's catchphrase. So... As you're going through... Oh, yeah, when he says Great Guardians? He says, Great Guns! Hmm, lousy expression. Needs something catchier. <laughs> and then he goes, uh, Great Galaxies! Hmm, keep working on it. And then later he goes, he goes, Great Guardians! Sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> I don't know why we needed that, but it was entertaining nonetheless, I guess. If you're going to... If you're going to give us obvious uh, exposition dialogue in his internal narrative, then uh, I guess give us something else there to keep us entertained as we're uh, putting up with it. <laughs> what do you think about Eric Shanower's art in this story? I like it. In this story, you're getting a lot of not really up-close shots of Hal, so I can't really comment on Hal himself except for a couple of panels towards the beginning uh, and a couple of panels towards the end. But the stuff of that... You get good profile shots. You get good close-ups. I really enjoyed. As far as the bird goes, I mean, I'm not. I'm obviously not an artist, but I'm going to say anyways. Anybody can draw a bird. Yeah. <laughs> it's so. But I do like that they took enough attention to detail to where like Hal has a very distinct costume. It would be very easy to forget that you know the parts of his costume that are green, you know, stop at the shoulder in the Silver Age. Yeah, good point. So that's that's cool. And I like the fact that when you get close enough to his face in the close-ups, you can see his eyes. Yeah. It's not the the white stuff that you usually see. It's you can actually see his eyes. So that's a that's a nice touch, especially when it comes to you have to give him that bored look when he's just like, yeah, <laughs> it had to be yellow, right? Yeah. Yeah, I just I mean, I've said it many times on this and I'll say it again that I just I really love what Chenor does with facial expressions throughout this. Mm. He makes Hal look great in these pages. I think Hal is one of the better looking characters throughout this book. And part of it is Hal's got a great costume design. I love it, but like just his first page, like the facial expressions he gives him, I think are pretty pretty solid. I really like it. For sure, and it's a really clean style too, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which I like. I don't see a lot of mistakes. I don't see a lot of issues with uh, it being too muddy or indistinct or anything like that. Even the, the, the animals that he collects in his green bubble, you know, in a distance and distorted by this green bubble still look, you know, very recognizably the animal that they are. So, In England, the Flash had been meeting with the Queen when the British government asked him to help put out some fires in the south London town of Croydon. When the Flash arrives, he is shocked to see a fire giant, the fifth Appalachian in the form that looks like... Well, like a fire giant. Barry tries to blow out the fire giant by waving his arms at super speed, but it only seems to embolden the giant. The monster glares at Flash, which causes the speedster to begin to transform into flame. He immediately vibrates his molecular structure at the speed necessary to break the fire giant's connection. 
Then Flash runs over to a standing body of water and circles it fast enough to suck up all the water in a vortex and dump it on the fire giant. The fire, however, is way too hot, and the water evaporates before it douses the flame. So Barry runs to a sand and gravel quarry and tries to smother the fire giant with the sand, but the heat from the giant fuses the sand into glass. When wind, water, and sand fail to extinguish the fire giant, Barry remembers the basic flash fact that fire requires oxygen to burn. So he runs around the fire giant at such super speed that he removes the oxygen from the surrounding air. At last, the Apalaxian collapses, its battle form ruined. The alien screams to unseen forces that he doesn't want his mind ripped from him, that he wants another chance. Then he slumps over dead. The Flash speaks to some of the local people, and one of them tells Flash about other alien meteors arriving on Earth. Flash runs across the Atlantic Ocean to arrive in the Everglades after the other four heroes. But when he arrives, he, like them, is transformed into a living tree. Keith G. Baker on the Flash section. I really like this Flash section. I, I love the art in it. It reminded me a, a lot of, uh, of McGuire from Justice League International later, but uh, I, th- I thought it was brilliant the way that everything seems to be moving. Every single panel seems to have a frenetic energy to it. So I went back and, and read the original origin story, too, and just yep. compared the two. Between this and, and, and the uh, uh, in this particular section of The Flash, it seems to be almost beat for beat like the original one as to how he tries to take out the monster. You know, basically the fighting of the monster is beat for beat, almost the same. You know, he tries wind and then water. And then he tries sand, uh, whereas before he ran all the way to the Sahara, and this one he just runs up the road. But um, his reason for being in in uh, Great Britain for each of them was a little bit different. Uh, in this story, he was meeting with the Queen of England because he saved somebody or something like that, whereas before he was actually at an Interpol meeting, which seemed to be a little bit more Barry Allen-ish for him to be at an Interpol meeting. I was trying to remember because... There are a few instances in these where the members of the team reference something specific that would have put it in a definitive spot in their own timeline. Aquaman says something was like, okay, well, then this had to have taken place after Adventure Comics, whatever, because Aquaman's just met Atlantis. And, like, Green Lantern has just met the Guardians on Oa or something before this, so it would put it at some point on his timeline. And I wasn't able to go back and figure it out, but maybe maybe a listener will, but I wonder if there was a story in whatever Flash comic was being published at this time in 1960, when the original origin was coming out, where he actually met the Queen of England or something. Right, yeah, I mean, I mean, this, this original story was what... Uh... 6061, something like that. Mm-hmm. But that would be interesting to know if, if in that particular time, if he was working with Interpol on, on something specific. I'd have to dig into that. I'm going to have to pull out my long boxes now. But the only thing that I noticed different was in this story, he specifically references uh, his ability to vibrate his molecules, which they didn't really go over in the original story. I guess it was a newish kind of thing back then. But but here it seems just kind of passe. He's when uh, the fire monster starts turning Flash into a creature of fire himself, or starts catching him on fire. He realizes that he can take care of it by just uh, vibrating his mole- his molecules in his hand, which he, he kind of blows it off. It seems kind of passe, like oh yeah, I can do that. Whereas before he was kind of on fire for a while until he beat the monster. So so that was a little bit different. Um, which of course, if he could do that, he probably should have used that power later in the story when he gets transformed into something else. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, that 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 is true. That Maybe is they true. didn't include that in the original one because they knew he could get out of it, and that yeah. was something that that Peter David forgot about when he rescripted this one. There's one part in the Flash section that really sort of stood out to me as is quite jarring because, for the most part, okay, so far we've gone through a lot of pages where it's yeah the the league each member they're fighting their own little tyrant and everything from this other planet and they're they're having their own little adventures and their own obstacles that they have to overcome and finally when flash defeats the fifth one where he runs around in the circles creating a vacuum that sucks all the oxygen away and the fire like suffocates essentially you get this alien monster screaming no, don't pull my mind from me. I can still win. Don't do it. I'm begging you. Don't. Please let me have another chance before it dies. And it's, whoa, wait a minute. This thing just got really intense all of a sudden. Where the, the alien monster <laughs> yeah, that, that I was rooting against is now like screaming that it's going to lose its mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that look on his face. I mean, especially seeing as how Barry at the time doesn't know that these are just constructs that our mind was put into so just the look on his face is one of almost uh, of the creature's face is one of horror it looks like right so. and anguish yeah. oh well especially you know, juxtaposed with the only other facial shot on this page which is Barry slapping himself in the head giving him like da doy I gotta suffocate it <laughs> oh yeah I just have to I just have to cut off its oxygen and kill it so yeah <laughs> The heroes banter for a short time, and Jean tries to understand how they use humor to fend off terror. Then the meteorite cracks open, and the sixth Appalachian steps out in the form of the Wood King. This alien reveals to the heroes that he intentionally delayed his arrival, and now, thanks to the heroes, the Wood King has only one more contender to destroy before he can become Kalar of his homeworld. The Wood King psychically commands the five heroes to follow him to Antarctica to battle the last Appalachian. Aquaman has no desire to walk from Florida to Antarctica, and little desire to serve as a tree soldier for the Wood King. Using his own telepathic abilities, he is barely able to control his own physical body. It's not much, but it's enough to knock into Martian Manhunter, who knocks into Green Lantern. Using his own mental abilities, Jean is able to resist the Wood King's influence enough that he scrapes off the wood around Hal Jordan's ring. Green Lantern only has enough will and aim to shine his ring's light on Black Canary's head, freeing her from the Wood King's power just temporarily. Dinah uses her canary cry on the Flash, pitching it at just the right frequency that it shatters the wood around his body, freeing the fastest man alive. The Flash launches himself at the Wood King with a million high-speed punches. He basically beats the Wood King to splinters, destroying the penultimate Appalachian's battle form. The five heroes, now freed, introduce themselves, congratulate each other on their resourcefulness and teamwork, and agree to work together to bring down the final Appalachian. Green Lantern and John Jones take to the air, with Hal carrying Flash, Aquaman, and Black Canary in a bubble created by his ring. During the journey south, Martian Manhunter notes that Green Lantern seems to be the only one completely at ease with an alien in their ranks, and the two exchange first names, Hal and Jean. When the group finds the meteorite in Antarctica, the crystal creature has already freed itself, but it also ran afoul of Superman, who destroys the last Appalachian. The Man of Steel dusts off his hands and takes off, seemingly not noticing the heroes behind him, although with his super senses that seems nearly impossible. The group is bummed out by their non-brush with Celebrity, and Black Canary mentions she was looking forward to working all together to fight the crystal creature. Safety in numbers, she says. 
That lights up a bulb over Flash's head. Flash pitches the idea of working together as a team. Jean is reluctant because it would require him to publicly out himself, but Barry counters that revealing himself in the context of joining other heroes would be great publicity for the Martian Manhunter, and for all of them. Black Canary, as the youngest and least experienced of the group, says she loves the idea, that it would feel like a return of the old Justice Society of America. Green Lantern floats the team name Justice Society 2, which gets shot down, of course, and Barry floats the idea of The Avengers. But Dinah tells him they'll be confused, by the TV show about British spies, naturally. Finally, they come to the name Justice League of America. Come together. As the five heroes pose for their final page group shot, Green Lantern wonders if anyone else will want to join the team. In the clouds behind them are images of future members of the League. Batman, Green Arrow, The Atom, Elongated Man, Firestorm, Gypsy, Hawk Girl, Hawk Man, Phantom Stranger, Red Tornado, Snapper Car, Steel, Vibe, Vixen, and Zatanna. The notable absences are, of course, Superman, who we saw earlier in this issue, and Wonder Woman, who we established was no longer part of the Justice League and wouldn't encounter the other heroes until the events of the Legends miniseries event that begat Justice League International. I wish that Peter David had gotten to write more Justice League stuff. I thought that, uh, you know, he worked well with Keith Giffen, and I actually asked him about that, and he didn't know why he didn't get more Justice League work either. I really feel like he would have been a great guy to have brought in when they were driving Keith Giffen and J.M. DeMatteis nuts trying to produce funny Just League stuff. I thought that this did a great job of both representing the Silver Age and also being reflective of the then-current Just League International flavor. Mm -hmm. And I, I just wish we'd gotten to see more from Peter David. And, you know, this was just a little work-for-hire thing. Robert Lauren Fleming was supposed to script this story. I'm glad that David had the chance to do this one story, and I just wish he'd done more. There is a great joke where the, I love when all the jailers are together and the wood creature is having them march mm -hmm. all in lockstep. And you hear Aquaman just think to himself, I don't know which is worse, that we've totally lost all control of our body to this creature's whims or that this thing expects us to walk from Florida to Antarctica. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those details that old comics don't bother with. People just traverse large distances in very short periods of time. But I love that Aquaman is like, oh, God, this is going to take like literally years. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Did you like how they how they escaped from the woodland creature and how each one of them took a part in it? Yeah, it's it's wonderful. It's it's you know it's square. It's very hokey, but it's it's exactly what you want in the Justice League. They're they're operating as a team, and it's it's perfect. Right. It's perfect. I love the the added detail here. Uh, I mean, in the old version told by Gardner Fox and Mike Sikowski, that 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 whole thing was told in like about a page. Right. And here here it's about six or seven pages, so it gets to breathe a little. Uh, yeah, it's a lot of fun. I, I like that Aquaman, because of his psychic abilities, his telepathy, that he's the one person who's kind of able to resist some of the, the alien's uh, powers. And he's the yep. one who sort of instigates by like forcing himself to knock into Martian Manhunter. Yep, yep, so, yep. That's cool. Keith, what did you think of the Flash's role at the end of the story? In the first story, he just kind of tries to fall in a certain way when Martian Manhunter knocks him over or blows him over. Whereas in this story, Black Canary uses her, her canary cry to jumpstart him. Right. And so he can start vibrating his molecules. So, so two times in this story, he uses the MacGuffin or whatever of, of vibrating his molecules. So, But 
as far as changes go, that was the only change that I could see other than the big glaring one, which always annoyed me about the story. And it has nothing to do with Black Canary. It has to do with the fact that the final wood meteor now lands in the Florida Everglades. Whereas in the original story, it landed in Cape Hatteras, North Carolina. It was pretty much the only mention in the entirety of DC Comics where my state gets mentioned. And it had to do it had to do with the Justice League founding. That final meteor landed off the coast in the outer in the beautiful outer banks of Cape Hatteras, North Carolina. Just whereas a stone's now, throw from your house? <laughs> no, nah, not really a stone's throw. It's about three hours drive, but still. But now uh, it's in the Everglades, and now it's in the home state of Shag. Exactly. That's Shag, a hard pill to swallow. Yeah, Shag stole the Justice League from me, yeah, <laughs> I guess, or something. I don't know. But but yeah, I don't I don't. But there seems to be no reason for that change, other than somebody at DC hates my state for some reason. <laughs> what did you think of the story as a whole? I enjoyed it. Uh, it's it, it was interesting to see the Justice League play out with such a smaller, more uh, scaled down group of characters. And at the same time, it really isn't that much different from the way the characters were originally, the team concept I mean, was originally introduced. Back when they first started the Justice League, uh, Mort Weisinger and Jack Schiff wouldn't let them promote the inclusion of Superman and Batman in these stories. So if you look at the covers and you look at the promotion, it was a big point of it being Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Flash, Green Lantern. So this sort of gets back to that to some degree. And I kind of like the five-member Justice League. I, I thought that they did a great job of exploring this particular collective in JLA year one. And uh, I, I just like the dynamic of this group. I like that you don't have the kind of alpha figures that Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman represent. So you have a greater equality. There's a more egalitarian quality to this grouping than there are to some of the other Justice Leagues while still being powerful enough to represent as a Justice League. That seems to run counter to what you were saying of like wanting kind of the big seven, the Magnificent Seven from the JLA era and like the biggest larger than life heroes. That's true, and I, and I love that about JLA, but at the same time, these are still iconic heroes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's not a situation where you've got, you know, Gypsy and Steel or even Adam and uh, Hawkman. It's like these are still really big characters. The only one that you could argue – I mean, Martian Manhunter and Black Canary were kind of also rands, but they're very iconic. They have a very important place within the greater context of the DC Universe. So they still feel like they're big enough. And then with Superman, I mean, sorry, with Flash, Green Lantern, and Aquaman, those are three of the most iconic comic book heroes of all time. So between those three, it's still balanced in favor of the grandeur that I expect from the Justice League. I think the story, it, it's, it's a lot of fun. I think they took what was working in Justice League International and they just kind of, because Keith Giffen obviously was writing it, but uh, and then you had Peter David, uh, an early job by Peter David and probably the first DC job that I know of, I didn't look it up, but this is years before his Aquaman run and, and his Supergirl run. He he always had a good ear for dialogue anyway, and then you got Giffen's natural snarkiness. And I mean, but it it has fun with it, but the characters are all new at their jobs. So they're all feeling that, you know, you know, wow, I wish, you know, I had somebody to talk to or I, I don't I'm not sure I can handle a big threat like this. And it really helped explain, well, why would these characters team up? I mean, it humanized them to a point. They weren't, you know, the perfect Silver Age characters. You know, they didn't do a lot of flashbacks in the Bronze Age. I mean, they would occasionally, but it would just be a few panels here and there. They never would do a whole story that really explored what they were thinking that cast them back before they were perfect, you know. And, and so it was nice to see that, that they had feet of clay and, 
you know, the little snarky comments. My favorite panel in this whole story, the one that pops out, is when Green Lantern says, he's, and to me always will sound like the guy from the Super Friends when he says this, my power ring will do the job. And Black Canary says, we're full of ourselves, aren't we? <laughs> it's just, and the look on her face and Green Lantern's got, you can tell his eyebrows raised up under his mask, you know, and he's, he's got that, you know, aha, you know, he, he's being very silver agey at that moment. And she's like, oh God, you know, this guy's full of himself. That's the panel I think of when I read, when I think about this story and it, it always puts a smile on my face. What did you think of the post-crisis changes to the League's origin, specifically the lack of Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman's involvement, and the inclusion of Black Canary? I never liked it. I know. I think this single comic is a great book. I think it's very funny. It's well-drawn. Uh, it has some great action beats. So I think this issue is the epitome of like making a silk purse out of a sow's ear. But I never liked it. I never, ever liked the idea that, that Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman were not part of the original Justice League. I get it because those characters were all basically rebooted sort of during the crisis. But just to me, no, the Justice League is those are those seven members. And I didn't. It's another one of the things where I'm like, I get it that Black Canary is the perfect fill-in for Wonder Woman because she's a legacy character. And and so was Flash and Green Lantern, so it makes total sense. But I hate that it, as much as this story messed with JLA continuity, having Black Canary be the fifth member, which plucks her out of her own history with the team, messes with the book's history even further. Yeah. Because now it's like, well, now she never came along and joined later. And to as someone who like found that it was a big deal when a new JLA member came aboard, all this messing with it just made me be like, no, that's no. So I don't know what other female character could have fit in that slot. I thought I read a text piece that they were talking about Miss America. Yep. Was was in consideration, which, of course, you just covered earlier in Secret Origins. Um, but I don't know. It just it just bothers me. You know, <laughs> I agree. And I say this as a guy who has a blog dedicated to Black Canary and a podcast about her. I never liked the idea. I like this story and I really like JLA year one. But it's it's got to be. It's Wonder Woman, Superman and Batman. They yeah. they belong on this team. The Justice League is lesser without them. Yep. And they did well as a replacement, but it's it was unnecessary, and I think they could have put the first couple issues of Perez's Wonder Woman in the past, like Man of Steel was, and then kept her as an original founding member. But, eh, whatever. Um, yeah, I mean, none of this is David and Giffen's fault. This was what they were hand, you oh, know, right, hand. Right. So the, this comic by itself is absolutely terrific. I love it. I've re-read re it hundreds of times over the years. So this is what they were given with, were given to work with. So none of this is, is their fault. I just, yeah. Black Canary belongs back in JLA number 75 when she joined like she did in real life. I do think that the reason they picked Black Canary is because she basically had no history, you know, yeah. because, okay, you had the Golden Age Black Canary, but and, and they could say, okay, that's where she was, and she ended with, you know, just the last uh, JLA, JSA team-up they did before she came over, but how did she join the Justice League? So they had to fill in, they killed two birds with one stone, basically. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, a canary, uh, two canaries <laughs> with one stone. So I, I think that's why they did it. And I think it, I think it worked out. You know, she was the female character with the most connection to the league outside of Wonder Woman. And, you know, you can argue that she probably appeared in almost just as many stories because Wonder Woman was out of the sure. league for so yep. long. I understand, you know, I'm surprised they even got to use Superman in a cameo because back then the DC, the Superman office was like, you can't use Superman. I mean, just like period, you know, right. and that's why the Legion's history got so screwed up because they're like, you can't even use the pocket universe Superboy anymore. 
So, you know, I, the fact that they show him at all is is nice, but I do kind of regret that we never really got a solid answer where Batman came in. I guess they did that one miniseries later. Uh, was that JLA Incarnations? Was that the name of it? Yeah. Yeah, it was okay, but it, you know, it didn't, it, it kind of said when he came in, but it, I don't know. It just in, in JLA year one kind of answered it. I, it he was just kind of there. He was, but I would have liked to have had a more definitive answer when Batman joined. I realized they couldn't have Superman and him teaming up in the in the Arctic or Antarctica or whatever they were, but because they weren't world the world's finest team anymore, they didn't like each other now, you know. But I, I do miss that. And of course, Superman and Batman were kept on the sidelines in the Silver Age by their editors who didn't want them on the covers. Can you imagine that? <laughs> <laughs> the DC that now publishes, I mean, they made Jonah Hex a Batman book, you know? At the time when I first read it, I was still not digging all the changes that came about with um, with Crisis. I, I was I was trying to roll, roll with a lot of it, but it just didn't make any sense to me for the Justice League not to have Wonder Woman in it. You know, I, I know that's something that everybody points out to with, with this change, but... I mean, the Justice League was always, you know, the big seven and then others, you know, and for them to take out Superman and Batman and and Wonder Woman, even though they kind of mentioned Superman had something to do with this story toward the end, there's still no Batman around. And now there's no Wonder Woman because uh, I guess George Perez was rebooting her at the same time. It rubbed me wrong back then, and it took until... I had gotten out of comics and I got back into it later and I went back and read JLA year one. And that was such a great story and flesh this, it seemed like it fleshed out this story a, a lot more. And by then it, it had kind of cooled off in my head and I could, I could kind of, you know, dig it. Um, but as far as the story as a, this particular story as a whole, I think is extremely well written and it's drawn very well. And little things like that, my personal hangups about continuity and stuff, I never let it get, get in the way of me enjoying a story. What would be your recommended readings for listeners who want to find great Justice League of America stories? The most obvious one to read coming out of this would be JLA Year One. Uh, I love Mark Wade's take on the Justice League. I wish he'd gotten to work on the characters more. I also am a big fan of JLA, so uh, any of the early JLA volumes by Grant Morrison or Mark Wade would be great. Uh, I also love a lot of the Jerry Conway material. Not very much of that has been collected, unfortunately. Oh, and of course, Justice League International. You know, the first uh, several trades of that series I thought were great. I think once you get into the third and fourth trades, you start to see the uh, uh, weariness of, of trying to produce so many books. But those first few trades are golden. Oh, man. Um, well, my favorite Justice League story is always uh, 195 through 197. I mean, if you can. It, that's a good story. That's <laughs> a yeah. favorite of mine, too. That's the story. I actually have a, an original page from uh, from George Perez on my wall from 195. But still, man, that 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 story is just awesome. But if I were to recommend anything, I'd, I'd tell everybody to, to just start with uh, Jerry Conway and start working your way forward. And then any of the ones where Kerry Bates writes himself into a story is always a good one. <laughs> um. <laughs> I would suggest picking up the Crisis on Multiple Earths trade paperbacks because you get a snapshot like every year of the team and how it changed and how comics changed. I mean, from you go from the Silver Age to the start of the Bronze Age where it's, you know, there's some flowery dialogue and, you know, there's a little bit of social relevancy and, and uh, I really enjoy reading them. And again, anything from the Perez era, I think there's at least a volume that collects the George Perez Justice League, all of his run on that. So I don't think you can go wrong there. 
my single favorite Justice League recommended reading has got to be not comics at all. And yes, I do mean reading, not watching. Um, it's the Justice League novels. The Justice League of America, I believe it's Superman, A Never-Ending Battle. Justice League of America, Wonder Woman, Mythos. Justice League of America, Green Lantern, Heroes Quest. Justice League of America, Flash, Stop Motion. Justice League of America, Batman, The Stone King. And Justice League of America, Exterminators. Those are extremely amazing books that graphic audio actually did an interpretation of every single one of those except i think jla exterminators i'm not sure about that but i'm pretty sure they never did that one i seriously cannot say enough how much i love those stories seriously the best justice league stories i've ever read are in those novels (laughs) very cool very cool well, any of the showcase books uh, are going to be great for you. I think they stop in the mid-70s, but any of those are really good. Just terrific. I thought JLA was a remarkably consistent comic. I mean, Jerry Conway wrote every issue from 151 through 216, and then he missed a couple and then came back and wrote the rest of the book. So, I mean, it was a very stable book creatively. It was always just a lot of fun. It was sort of like the flag. I think Superman is supposed to be the flagship book or action comics, but to me, Justice League always was the flagship title of the DC Universe because it was everybody. It was it was all the main heroes all in one book. So pretty much you can't go wrong with any era of Justice League. If you like stuff with a little more characterization, you're obviously going to go for the 70s and, and the 80s. If you want just straightforward superhero daring do, then going to be Gardner Fox. And if you want to read a Justice League era where there is no mention of Aquaman whatsoever, read the Denny O'Neill stories because he completely forgot Aquaman was on the team. <laughs> Chris Franklin, where can people find you online if they want to hear more from you? You ain't got to go very far because I'm right here on the Fire and Water Network woo-hoo, on the Supermates podcast. I host with my wife, Cindy. Uh, if you check out episode 50, R- Ryan was on there uh, with Rob Kelly. And uh, you've been on the show twice before that. And, uh, I don't remember I'm, any of that. You don't remember any of that? Nope. It's news <laughs> to me. Well, you know, it's. I seem to recall I was on the Secret Origins uh show uh like back in episode i think one and then what was it six or something like yep. that and i haven't been back since so <laughs> it's about damn time uh, you got but, superman and batman <laughs> and now i'm on the justice league episode yeah. <laughs> we're done you know <laughs> let's walk drop the mic and walk away rob kelly uh, everything can be found at fireandwaterpodcast.com. And if you want to read my movie reviews, uh, which I hope you do, it's over at 13thdimension.com. I write the column called Real Retro Cinema. Diablo Frank. Well, you know, Marshmallow is in this story, so I do have an idle head of Diablo podcast. I try to get it out more regularly, but it seems like mostly it comes out once a month. But uh, roughly around the same time this episode will be out, I'll have what's intended to be either a weekly or a bi-weekly Bloodlines podcast covering DC's Bloodlines event and the characters generated by it. So uh, since people will maybe not have heard of that by this point, I'd you know, recommend them checking it out. You can find that DC bloodlines dot, you know, if you put in DC bloodlines, the search engine will turn up pretty quickly. Uh, and it'll also be in the rolled spine feed. Keith G Baker. Nobody ever really wants to hear more from me after they hear me once <laughs> is the way it normally happens. But, uh, if they want to hear me, uh, I guess Twitter is the, is the place that I yell the most, um, at KGB UNC. I also have another Twitter handle, which is just kind of sitting there waiting for me to get off my butt and do something with it. 
it's called Sports and Comics. It's at Sports and Comics. I have a little hobby where I um, I tend to keep up with the professional sports teams in the fictional cities of the DC universe. <laughs> So I know that's rather specific, but like whenever the New Jersey Devils appear, I don't care. But if the Gotham Blades appear uh, on the ice with them, I'll make a note of it. I have an extensive spreadsheet going back. Uh, Eventually, I'm going to do something with it. It doesn't seem to lend itself to blog form. I think it'd be more like an informational page online because I've narrowed it down to – to about four or five creators who seem to enjoy it as much as I do. So I just need to get in touch with them. Sure. No, but, that seems like it would be a great like reference for like DC writers or people in like the role-playing games. Like if they needed just like a little mini wiki <laughs> of all the, the DC in-universe fictional sports teams. Oh yeah, exactly. And, and that was kind of what spurred me to it was you could tell really the writers and artists who cared enough to figure out that Gotham already had a football team. And not every professional team in Gotham is named the Knights. Um, you know, those ones who actually took the time and put those little Easter eggs in there. I, you know, little things like that that I enjoy, which I guess contributes to my madness. But it helps me sleep at night to keep these things organized. Chad Bokelman. Uh, if you want to hear more from me about uh, Green Lantern, you can join me and my co-host, Mark Marble. So that is going to be LanternCast, the LanternCast. And uh, you can find us at LanternCast.com. You can download us off of iTunes or stream us on Stitcher. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and the DC All Access app. And we post weekly uh, reviews, uh, commentary tracks. We do interviews with creators, uh, all kinds of things. So you can definitely check us out on the LanternCast. And I got another podcast coming out uh, this month. At some point this month, I just don't know exactly when as – uh, as we record this, the Action Comics Weekly podcast, uh, of which Ryan will be appearing at some point, uh, if I can wrangle him. You're everywhere, dude. Seriously, get off my podcast feed. Uh, stay, Never. stay in your secret orgi- origins box. Never. <laughs> but uh, so, so Action Comics Weekly. I will be covering every issue of Action Comics Weekly, one issue per episode, with a. I think I'm going to be call it a semi-regular rotating cast <laughs> of guest hosts to cover the specific character of their choice, which, you know, the Black Canary fan over here, it's pretty obvious where he's going to be showing up. Etrigan um, the Demon. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Hero Hotline. <laughs> um, so we'll be we'll be talking uh, Action Comics Weekly. I'm really excited about that project, and a lot of other people seem pretty excited about it without any audio being out <laughs> yet. So that's that's exciting. And then, of course, I got my Ragman blog. Yeah, that's thesuitofsouls.blogspot.com. Okay, so what did I think of this issue of Secret Origins? Taken on its own, it's terrific, one of the best issues of the series. The original story by Gardner Fox and Mike Sikowski was crazy, but fun in a wacky Silver Age kind of way. The updated version benefits from Keith Giffen, who was at the top of his creative game in the late 1980s. A script from a hungry Peter David, one of the best comic book writers ever, especially when it comes to dialogue and characterization. And gorgeous art by Eric Shanower, who could, I think, have been one of the all-time legends of superhero artists if that distinction had held any real interest for him. 
Peter David is one of the best writers in comics of the last 25 years, so he's not going to script a crappy Justice League comic. Keith Giffen and Mark Wade took Gardner Fox's decades-old story and fluffed it up a bit, and David added the right voices and little details that made the characters resonate so well. With the exception of Aquaman being so down on himself, every character feels pretty right for the time. Jean is a little paranoid and stays hidden until he's encouraged by Green Lantern and the Flash. Hal Jordan feels appropriately cocky given the weight of their situation, and Black Canary has the spitfire of a young woman looking to prove herself to her mother. Eric Shanor's art is fantastic in this comic. There's something similar to Mike Allred in how Shanor draws Aquaman and Hal Jordan, and most of the depictions of Black Canary are lovely and luscious. The story is great, but ultimately it's a flawed tale. Last episode raised the question, do Superman and Batman belong in the origin of the Justice Society of America? I've given the matter some thought, and eventually come up with a very complicated answer that does its best to avoid committing to one side of the debate. Here is the best I can manage to explain. In a fantasy world where I ran DC Comics, I would adapt elements of the Justice Society's pre-crisis origin from DC Special 29 and the post-crisis story in Secret Origins 31, and I would pad it up to a three- or four-issue miniseries. This event of the heroes uniting against Hitler's forces would be the first canonical story where the Golden Age heroes teamed up and worked together. But they wouldn't be the Justice Society of America. Not yet. Superman would be involved, either because he's part of that world, or through time travel means or something. And Superman would be there at the crucial moment to stop the Valkyrie from assassinating the president. But the Spectre's journey to the afterlife would also be present in the story, perhaps earlier in the tale, as Kyle Benning suggested, like the Spectre goes to God and asks permission to take a proactive action in the fight, or maybe the Valkyrie's blast kills Al Pratt, and the Spectre goes to the Great Beyond to bring the Atom back from death. I'm not sure about that yet. The point is, Superman could be part of this story, the first massive crossover team-up of DC's superhero timeline. But he wouldn't be part of the JSA, neither would the Spectre. This story would just be an event, a prologue of sorts, that would spin off into the Justice Society of America ongoing series. The roster of the team would not include Superman, or Batman, or the Spectre. I'm not sure about the Sandman's presence on the team either. Maybe Starman or Wildcat could be there from the beginning. Anyway, what I'm trying to get at is that I agree with Al and Kyle that the story suffers without the presence of Superman. But I also agree with Shag that Superman and Batman do not belong on the Justice Society of America. Their presence, I think, diminishes the power of the Golden Age Flash, Green Lantern, Hawkman, and Doctor Fate. But that is not how I feel about the Justice League of America. Superman and Batman and Wonder Woman are crucial components to the team. They make the Silver Age Flash and Green Lantern and Aquaman and Martian Manhunter greater. The rising tide lifts all boats. Secret Origins 32 is a great story, but it can never be my origin of the Justice League. I love me some Black Canary. I started a blog and two different podcasts dedicated to her. I have a Twitter handle called Black Canary Fan, but she doesn't belong on the coveted slot of Justice League founding member. I understand why Giffen and Wade chose her for Wonder Woman's replacement. The pre-crisis Black Canaries joining the League was handcuffed to the concept of multiple Earths that no longer existed, and the retconned origin from only five years earlier was nonsensical, I think, is the best way to put it. 
Making Black Canary a legacy character, two distinct heroes, a mother and a daughter, was the simplest solution. But they needed a clear line of demarcation. Where precisely did the older Canary story end, and where did the new one begin? The simple solution was that the older Canary fought alongside the Justice Society, while her daughter served with the Justice League from day one. The original seven members of the League are my preferred lineup. Justice League, the animated series, brought in Hawkgirl in place of Aquaman. I love Hawkgirl too, but I'd never pick her over the Sea King. On the other hand, part of me can imagine Hawkman stepping in for Martian Manhunter, mostly because Hawkman was in the original lineup of superpowers action figures. The first wave of heroes included six members of the Justice League, plus Hawkman and Robin. I can envision a world where Hawkman substituted for Jean Jones and the Boy Wonder for Snapper Carr. And yet, on my other podcast, Power of Fishnets, also available on the Fire & Water Network, I made a case that if any female character were to take Wonder Woman's place on the original Justice League roster, it should be Zatanna, the Mistress of Magic. But these are all speculative, hypothetical ideas. The point I'm making is, I do not believe Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman belong on the Justice Society of America. But they absolutely belong on the Justice League. Alright, let's get to some listener feedback already. Last episode received Twitter favorites and retweets from The 108th Sage, Andrew in Belfast, Between the Pages, Chris Ekstat, Coffee and Comics Blog, Comic Book Insurance, Comic Reflections, Dan at Dinosaur Number 1, David Golding Artist, David Gutierrez, Diablo Frank, DS and RS, Ed Moore at Teal Productions, Ed Moore at Indie Comics Fan, Ed Moore Jr. at Miskatonic. It's a lot of Ed Moores, kind of suspicious. Anigo Montoya, Firestorm Fan, Greg Arujo, Jason Unmasked, Jim at Jimfinity, Jim Bao, Juan Pablo Cicero, Just Art at Trending Art Today, King Size Comics, Giant Size Fun, Michael Roberts, Paul Scavito, Richard Field, Siskoid, Superman Cap Marvel, Trekker Talk, and Warlord Worlds. Over on Facebook, we got a belated but much appreciated comment from Facebook user Abadaba, also known as Howard Simpson, the artist who penciled the Doctor Occult story from Secret Origins 17, the Manhunters issue, and, coming soon, a contributor to the Flash Rogues issue. Abba, I'm going to refer to him as Abba for now, commented on episode 17 where Michael Bradley and I reviewed Dr. Occult's origin. He said, This comment is very late, but I just came across this podcast yesterday. To answer some questions, yes, I drew the splash page and did try to make it have a Golden Age feel, thus the stiffness. He was drawn with what became the same face Superman would have, so I did push the face more in a Dick Tracy direction because of the hat and overcoat. Roy didn't ask for this Golden Age style. I read all of the Doctor Occult stories, and I just absorbed it, and it came out as I drew. I went back to listen to that episode to make sure that Michael and I didn't say something awful about the art. Thankfully, the comments were mostly about the intentional stiffness and the artist's attempt to replicate the Golden Age Schuster feel. I did speculate in that episode that Roy Thomas might have requested a Golden Age sensibility or art style in his script, but here Abba says, nope, that was just the way he interpreted the story, which is cool to know. Now, I hope Jeff Nettleton and I praised the art on the Manhunter episode. Anyway, 
We got some more great posts on Facebook for episode 31. New likes and shares came from Aaron Head Moss, Abadaba, Al Sedano, Anthony Durso, Bradley Austin Null, Brian Anderson, Brian Green, Brian Yardley, Carl Wickstrom, Chris Sachs, Clinton Robison, Damian Trotton, David Ace Gutierrez, David Foster, Dale Dale, Derek Leitner, Doug Miller, Edward Viveros, Fire and Water Network, Gotham Shioran, Gene Hendricks, Greg Arujo, Gord Tolton, Igor Glushkin, Irredeemable Shag, Jay Jones, Jimmy McGlinchey, Jim Romaldi, Joe Crawford, Keith G. Baker, Kevin Barrett, Kyle Benning, Leon Bain, Max Romero, Michael Wagner, Nicholas Prom, Robert Guy, Rob Kelly, Ronnie Ling, Ruth Sutherland, Sean Emmons, Sean Brock, Sean Myers, Siskoid, Surf Punks, Terry Wood, Tim Wallace, Trevor Owen Williams, William Byrne, Van Z, and Zeb Oswald. On to the website comments, which can be found at fireandwaterpodcast.com. As you can probably imagine, most of the comments compared Secret Origins 31 to the original story in DC Special 29. And the question of whether the Justice Society needs Superman and Batman comes up quite a bit, too. The first comment came from Bradley Null, who was my guest on the Elongated Man story. Great coverage of a comic I'm not fond of. This was, when I bought it, one of the greatest disappointments I had reading comics. I'm a JSA fan from early on in my comic fandom. When I was first collecting, they were my third favorite team after X-Men and the new Teen Titans, who had ongoing books. Post-Crisis, they were my favorite team once I outgrew those other two. I was buying Secret Origins when it came out. I was excited for this story, and then that ending. I thought for sure the team was going away, and this was going to be the sad last we ever heard of them. And how right you were, Bradley. The Justice Society never came back after that one. Chris Franklin, from this episode, as well as Supermates and Power Records, both available on Fire & Water Network, said, I gotta agree, the original version of the Justice Society's origin is better. I can appreciate what Thomas did with the Spectre, but the Spectre has plenty of iconic wow moments in his history. Al Pratt does not, and Thomas robbed him of that moment. Speaking of the Spectre, Michael Bear is channeling Jim Aparo in Spectre's mugshot in FDR's file, for sure. I agree with that last one. Actually, Chris, I agree with all those points. Chris continues, I miss Superman and Batman with the JSA. Yes, they were really only honorary members in the Golden Age, and only made two appearances, one a cameo and one a full-blown adventure. But in the Bronze Age, young creators were really exploring the ramifications of aging heroes on a parallel world, and seeing an aged Superman and an aged and eventually deceased Batman was one of the aspects about Earth 2 that really appealed to me. They could do things with those versions of the characters that they would never dare do with the main versions. They still didn't butt into the JSA stories every time, but when they did show up, it was special. I missed that. In this story, I missed that weird moment where Hitler unmasks Batman, only for Dr. Fate to magically make another cowl appear beneath. And then there's Staten's kapow splash of Superman tearing through that bomber. I first read that original in a DC Digest reprint. That poor book is barely holding together nowadays. I read it so much. Jeff R. said, I'm not sold on the idea that the JSA is better without Superman and Batman. Not at all. Since the post-war 50s JSA is my JSA, the one that did most of the crossovers, the Superman and Batman legacy characters, Power Girl, Robin as a solo hero, and Huntress are some of my favorite members. 
And it's obviously impossible to even have those characters in a 50s context when you take away their foundations. So I'm with the Bring Back Earth 2 classic solution to the JSA. Jeff Nettleton also preferred the original version from DC Special, but he grants that Michael Bear's art captures the 1940s look, which other artists of that period failed to do. Jeff said, In regards to the Valkyries, this is a truer connection than Marvel's use of the Norse myths. The Germans were big on Teutonic myth, iconography, and the occult, as stated, and this jibes pretty well with Nazi rallies and propaganda. If they had a mystical weapon, this is how I see it being manifest. Roy did similar things in the debut of The Invaders, with Teutonic gods, revealed to be aliens under a Nazi spell. It fits with Nazi ideology. As for a swan song for Roy, well, it's what he had been working towards, but I don't feel he added much to Levitt's original story. It seems like a letdown, which is how I often felt about his Secret Origin stuff. It didn't have the strength of All-Star Squadron or the first year of Infinity Incorporated. I felt the same way about the last JSA story. It wanted to be epic, but kind of fell flat. It seemed like Roy wasn't able to make the characters his own, whether due to reverence for what came before or editorial directive. By contrast, with the invaders, he was able to do what he liked. I completely agree with that, Jeff. Uh, Jeff also provided some historical context for William Stevenson and Operation Sea Lion. You can read his full comments for that information. Rob Kelly from the Fire and Water podcast and the new Pod Dylan podcast expressed his hurt feelings that we excluded him from an episode that features President Roosevelt so prominently. Rob said, The cover is terrible. Sorry, but there it is. As was mentioned, why didn't they just do a new version of the classic All-Star Comics 3 cover is beyond me. I thought the original origin as presented in DC Special was so good that seeing it mangled here really bothered me. It just doesn't work the same without Superman and Batman and all the accompanying beats. Siskoid from the Lonely Hearts Romance Comics podcast, as well as First Strike the Invasion podcast, said, Ah, the one issue I missed after committing to collecting the entire run from issue 5 on, so I never even had a chance to see the stray Valkyrie Fanny. Siskoid goes on, Not a popular opinion, apparently, but I loved Last Days of the JSA. But after that, these heroes didn't really get their due for years. I was out of comics during the Johns days and the latter-day JSA series, but read the Lyle and Parabek series. I like the JSA as older mentors showing up in other series. But as a team, I don't know. I always kind of wish their adventures would take place on the 40s or even 50s. Hey, I'm there with you, Siskoid. I think the Justice Society stories work best as a period piece in and around the time of World War II. I like them in that era more than as elder statesmen training legacy heroes of today. Dr. Ange from the Supergirl blog said, Thanks for ruining the cover for me, especially the rotund Our Man reveal. Actually, thanks for ruining the interior art for me just the same way. Then Ange said, I have always loved the JSA without Superman and Batman. They have enough stories to tell. Surprisingly, I don't mind Wonder Woman being part of it. I can remember reading the story and just being wide-eyed at the Spectre ripping through the German Navy. That's some serious kaiju mojo going on there. Too bad the bloom is off the rose later in the White Pages conversation with God. Martin Gray from the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl said, I agree with everyone who says the original was better, that DC Special is one of DC's finest and didn't need a tweaked version. The heck with it. Batman and Superman are best as simple cameos, dropping in occasionally. But this story? Bah. I suppose we're lucky we didn't get flaming Neptune Perkins, Flying Fox, and Arn Monroe in there. Gene Hendricks from... 
well, from many, many shows on the Two True Freaks Network, popped in after Kyle Benning asked for his analysis of the Valkyries in last issue. Gene said, First, for those of you that don't know me, a little explanation. I am a heathen, which means that I am a member of the Asatru religion and worship the Norse gods. Since this is a Reconstructionist religion, it means that I have done a good amount of reading on the subject. That being said, I have a couple of problems with the use of the Valkyries in this story. The first one is that, while they were warriors, the primary purpose of the Valkyries was as choosers of the slain, so they wouldn't have been the ones in the battle, but the ones there after everything went down. Quick bit of trivia, only half of the slain went to Valhalla, the rest went to Falkvanger, Freya's Hall. It would have made more sense for the Einherar, those warriors already taken to Valhalla, to appear and do battle. The second problem I have is that by using the Spear of Destiny to summon and control the Valkyries, it is stating that Christianity and its magic items are that much more powerful than the Norse deities. Taking a group of warriors that answer only to Odin and making them obey someone who just happens to be holding the spear is just too much. Of course, I'm aware that most people aren't even aware that my religion actually exists, but just try picturing this happening with Shiva instead and think how Hindus would react. Lastly, as Jeff stated above, the Nazis did use a lot of Teutonic and Norse iconography in their rallies and propaganda. However, this is similar to the KKK using Christian iconography. No one in his right mind believes that all Christians are white supremacist douchebags simply because that group subverted the symbols. It's not the same with Asatru, since just wearing a Thor's hammer, as I do, is seen by some as saying that you support the Nazi cause. Comics like this don't help that image, even if that's not the intention. As I said, thank you very much for that comment, Gene. It's very insightful, and I think it supports my misgivings about the Valkyries being used in the story. Well, Gene's objections are completely different than mine, but we both agree that the Valkyries should not have been used this way. Clinton Robison from Coffee and Comics Blog said he'll never be able to unhear Shag referring to Kyle as Kylo Benning. So, it sounds like Kyle's got a new nickname when he appears on Give Me Those Star Wars. Jimmy McGlinchey has probably the best comment I received on the whole episode. Jimmy said, My first introduction to JSA characters was their being mentioned in their Legacy Characters series. Joan Garrick became a supporting character in the Mesner Lobes Flash, and there was an anniversary issue of the 1990s Green Lantern series, which referred to Alan Scott's disappearance. The first comics featuring the team that I bought was the 1990s miniseries. This led to Armageddon Inferno, which brought the team back, and the 10-issue series by Straczewski and Parabek, which was an excellent series. And here is where Jimmy earns his wings. I see on Amazon that this will be reprinted in trade paperback before Christmas 2016. That is right, people. Amazon has a listing for Justice Society of America, the complete 1992 series available for pre-order, expected to come out in November. Now, I'm trying not to overreact because Amazon occasionally lists books that don't get published, and the product description says it collects issues 1 through 8, which would be the 1991 series, not the 1992 book. But all that aside, if this is true, we'll finally get the Parabek JSA comics collected in trade for the first time. That is going to be awesome. It's hard to follow that comment, but hey, that's what Diablo Frank is for. Frank shared his early experience with the Justice Society of America characters. Unsurprisingly, he did not care for or connect with the characters when he first found them in the 1980s. 
Even post-crisis, Frank says, it took me a while to see any value in DC trotting out its World War II characters, since that period was 40 years gone and already well-trod by nostalgia products, not to mention readily available black-and-white pictures still running routinely on UHF. Frankly, DC didn't have Captain America among their World War II ranks. Tin Pan Alley Hat Flash and Colorblind Green and Purple and Black and Isn't There Some Yellow in There Too Lantern didn't cut it. But I did kind of like how they died again and again in violent ways in the last days of the JSA special. It took the 90s to finally start turning my opinion around. That's when I started seriously investing in the DC Universe and when the concept of generational heroes took root in their continuity. Writers like James Robinson grounded the JSA in the pulpy 30s and tumultuous post-depression 40s, revealing their heroes as coming from a hardier, more pragmatic stock than those squeaky clean tight asses from the Silver Age that I never warmed to. They were now from the real Earth, with decades of experience that set them apart in a good way from the second generation of DC heroes I wasn't overly enamored with, as I was plunging into the third and fourth generations via the Titans, the Superman, the New Bloods, and Zero Hour. Not a one of them was Captain America, but they were all closer to being Cap than Baby Boomer Hal Jordan or even the sainted dead Barry Allen. And just so Frank doesn't have the last word, FKA Jason from the Silver and Gold podcast said, Good episode. I particularly liked the ongoing discussion about that one character's butt. Podcast gold. Well, thank you, Jay, and thank you to everyone else who left a comment on Facebook, Twitter, or the website. Thank you all who promote the show on social media every week. You are the real heroes. And, of course, big thanks to my guests this time around, Rob Kelly, Chris Franklin, Diablo Frank, Chad Bokelman, and Keith G. Baker. Next week, Secret Origins begins a three-part saga chronicling the origins of various members of Justice League International. Three episodes, nine stories, and ten guests, seven of whom will be brand new to this show. It's going to be amazing, assuming it doesn't kill me. Secret Origins Podcast is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page at facebook.com backslash secretoriginspodcast. You can find me on Twitter at ryandaily01 or you can send an email to rdailypodcast at gmail.com. The Secret Origins Podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics and the views expressed on the show belong solely to the speaker. All music, audio clips, and quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and believed covered under fair use. And since I make no money off this podcast, no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening. <laughs>